Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to What Should I Think About. Again, it's one of those special evenings. It's uh, an evening with, that we like to call it. Um, I'm really happy to welcome producer Bob back onto What Should I Think About. Welcome, hey. producer Bob. Hello, Stephen. Hello, the listeners. <laughs> Excellent. You're suffering with a bit of a cold today, aren't you? So, I am. Um, thank you for soldiering on. <laughs> yeah, apologies in advance for the slightly uh, nasally voice. <laughs> Celine had the same thing last week, so um, yeah, we yeah, there's a lot brutal. of it about, as they say. Yeah. Um, so we we're hoping to have Jordan with us uh, today, but he's um, he's had something he's had to deal with, so he may join us later. If he doesn't. That's cool. We'll uh, we'll catch up with him another time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd arranged this for for quite some time, hadn't we, to uh, get together and have a chat about something mm-hmm. a bit different, really. Yeah. Um, so this was a, a lecture that, um, as as part of Humanist UK, we attended this lecture. It's the Voltaire lecture, yeah. and um, the person doing the lecture was Nicola Raihani. And she's written a book as well called The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World. Um, so very interesting subject. She's a, a research fellow at the University University College London. Um, she's a professor in evolution and behavior. So, um, so yeah, we thought it'd be an interesting lecture to talk about and uh, not quite sure where it's going to go and how... You know, we're, we're going to sort of think about it, but um, that's kind of the point of the show, isn't it? So um, do you want to just give us a quick introduction about what the lecture is about and what this subject is about? Yeah, sure. Yep. So um, what what uh, she was talking about was she's been doing some research and the uh, point of her research is to look at the the, the cooperation between people and also in nature and by that she means um teamwork working together how the uh how different species and how everybody works together basically so the book that she's written the social instinct is about cooperation and she explores different levels of skill and the molecules and cells all the way up in families wilder communities all up to a global scale. So mm-hmm. she's an evolutionary biologist. So that's what she does. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the lecture was kind of about that, wasn't it really? It was, yeah. um, I guess she was taking bits from a book and her research, her PhD was in uh, cooperation amongst a, a, a group of birds called pied babblers, which I'd never yeah. heard before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, she is. I mean, that's such a broad 
subject if you think about it, isn't yeah. it? You know, cooperation from right from the kind of genetic and cell level right through to world scale. cooperation. It's 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 a very ambitious um, field, really. Um, she started yeah. by talking about ants, actually, and the way that even very primitive, well, what we might think of as kind of primitive uh, creatures like ants, um, they obviously, I think we all know how, how cooperative they are. Mm. Um, they obviously cooperate in a very specific way to do lots of things, build nests, and um, they they have all sorts of clever behaviours. Um, she She talked about how they will, this particular type of ant, when they're building a nest and then covering it, um, some of them will stay outside to yeah. make sure that the nest is properly covered um, so no potential predators can see the nest. But that means that they're, they're going to die. So um, they, they just accept, obviously, they just do that. Um, and then not only that, but they then go and make sure they die somewhere else because yeah. if they die on top of the nest, then it's kind of going to give it away. Absolutely, uh, which was very, very interesting. She, it's the act of self-sacrifice, isn't it? That's what we were studying there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So basically, she what she was saying is when it comes to um, why she wanted to look at this is because when we look at our species, the human species, she was talking about cooperation as a superpower. That's right. And um, the reason why we managed to not only survive but thrive in almost every habitat on earth and she mm. wanted to look at why are we so cooperative and then she also looked looked into the animal kingdom to see mm. um if there was any examples in that and then obviously if she just talked about the ant mm. um this particular species that she came across that basically self-sacrifice themselves for the rest of the uh, ant uh, community yeah, I mean that's quite interesting because um, certainly when when I was growing up, and I think it's one of the criticisms that um, sort of fundamentalist religions have about evolution is that you know it's all about survival of the fittest, and um, you know uh, it's about competition and and all of that. Um, yeah. But I think we've we've come to understand that actually evolution really does favour cooperation just as much if not more so than uh, competition so um you know from ants through to um apes through to some of the specific animals that that we're going to talk about later like meerkats and uh, mm. and, and so on that they they have an incredibly cooperative um social order um so actually you know evolution whilst yes it is um partly about competition and finding evolutionary niches and so on it, it is also partly about uh cooperation and sometimes between species so she talked about that as well yeah which is really really interesting That's true, um yeah. so i think philosophically it's really useful to to again if you've come out of a of a fundamentalist group you're you're likely to have a view of evolution that is shaped by this this fundamentalist group so you might think that it's all about um you know aggressively um being the the most fit and uh the the strongest only the strongest will survive this sort of mentality but that isn't really what evolution is is really about it's about adapting to the environment and the animals that have the 
the adaptations that allow them to do that survive long enough to um, to have young that survive and they have young. So yeah. um, I, I suppose at this point it's perhaps worth thinking about the level at which she talks about this. So she talks about a couple of levels. In fact, I'd say she talks about three different levels of analysis. One is kind of at the genetic level. So we can think about how animals cooperate and why they cooperate based around uh, reproduction of the animal's genes. So this is kind of the Dawkins selfish gene type um, philosophy that actually you can look at evolution as essentially being the driver of it is that the genes are um, uh, trying, I put in inverted commas, reproduce um, so therefore behavior that gives them a better chance of reproducing their own genes or their relatives genes that behavior is more likely to lead to survival long enough for them to have offspring to carry on their genes so that's at one level that's what's happening but then she talks about at different levels you know that might not be the motivation of the animal itself um but it's still a, it depends what level you're looking at. So, um, so I thought that was quite, quite interesting. So she actually started, um, so she talked about the, um, the ants. What did she then sort of get, get into next? Uh, Then she started talking about, she was comparing the nuclear human family and then she was comparing it to, uh, closest relatives which are the ape species Mm, and what she was um talking about was in the nuclear family like modern day like what we recognize today is that you would have a mom and a dad and the children Mm. and then um most of the time on earth we have also had extended family units um and that means that there's usually mothers or grandmothers mother-in-laws that are expected to help um receive the young look after the young mm. um and then also you would uh, extended from that you'd get the fathers and older siblings so you'd get this wide variety of family member mm. members and then what she was comparing that to she was saying that it's actually quite different to other great apes families where the females usually raise their offspring alone and they don't mm. tend to have assistance from other family members and yeah. um, um, what she, she she was basically asking why are we different? Why as humans do we live in these extended family units where these where as a mother we would get assistance, whereas the great apes don't? Uh, and then she went on to talk about environments and we, the lands in which humans have evolved and lived in, and how this has impacted on um, how the human family has come together and grown. Basically, yeah, I thought it was really really interesting. Um... We we tend to think, uh, as you said, this sort of nuclear family that we're used to as being yeah. um, the way that it's always been. But as you say, that's she said it. She described it as an outlier, really, in in historical terms. Um, that's certainly not how we we would have been, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. No. Um, so it's yeah, um, and and yeah, the the environmental issues I think was because we we evolved in a very kind of hot dry environment so lots of pressures to um, make sure that children survived yeah especially um, with difficulties getting food that's right and um, and, and then of course uh, she, when she looked she compared the human body and 
she calls our brains the large onboard computers. So we're talking about the formation of the human brain and how yeah. that is energy rich. We need an energy rich diet, sorry, yeah. to um, feed mm. this very hungry organ. Um, yeah. So with that, with the need for the food, humans had to work together to meet these nutritional requirements. And with that, they successfully were able to raise offspring. So this is why the human family unit sort of started to come together and live the way it has. Yeah, that's right. And um, one of the the consequences of this um, was something she featured, which I'd absolutely never thought of before, was that um, in some species there are, uh, in some animals, there are arrangements where you have helpers who are, essentially not trying to reproduce their genes they are essentially there to help with the with the reproduction of the genes of the greater family if you like and yeah. um, in most cases they themselves are um, sterile they're not able to reproduce i think again ants would fit into that and bees and things like that so there's a very yeah. limited number of of, um, of animals who would be able to produce offspring um but with with human beings, um, this has kind of led to uh, as being an exception in that we have grandmothers essentially um, that yeah. hang around um, that stay alive, <laughs> um, uh, which is very different to most of the animal kingdom. So most of the time, uh, a female will be able to breed for essentially all of its life, yeah, um, until the time that it it dies. Whereas with human beings, pretty exceptionally, we, uh, for, for the female, um, sort of into half of its life or two thirds of its life, that female stops being able to breed. Um, and the question is, why is that? Why are yeah. human beings so different to yeah. the rest of the animal kingdom? Yeah, um, because then they reach uh, females of the species reach an age where they go into the menopause. That's right. Which um, obviously that means that their ability to have babies themselves mm. that's st- that stops, but they uh, don't pass away like they would if they were in another another animal species. They continue to live and, like you just said, provide support, emotional support, or you know, functional support to mm. the other females that have got children. Mm. So effectively, yeah, the grandmother role, um, and that, that is unique um, to um, this, all other species on Earth. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting. So, I mean, it, it, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the idea of social, socially constructed roles versus yeah. natural roles. And, and in a way, that's there's something there about the fact that grandmothers it's almost like they are evolutionarily designed to help and be part of, of, of that family to help with that child rearing. I know not all children have the advantage of having grandmothers or grandfathers, but um, it seems that there's a very natural thing there that, that's happening when, you yeah. know, grandma comes around and um, does a bit babysitting and, and so on, which I, I think's, really nice that 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 kind of makes you think that's actually a really interesting and a yeah. very nice thing um and valuable clearly 
Um, so yeah, so that that was different. But I suppose that at first you thought, think, well, what's that got to do with cooperation? But of course, it, it's again, it's the fact that a human being, even after the point where its genes cannot be reproduced or um, you know proliferated, um, are still contributing they're still cooperating with the group with the family with the wider community um so again there's a there's an evolutionary reason to to cooperate yeah um, which i think is very very interesting yeah definitely um so there was a one of the bits that i found per- personally most interesting because of, of my job in training and teaching is there was a discussion around that training and teaching because that obviously that's one huge area of cooperation that human beings do and um i mean certainly i'd i'd believe that if you actually look at the animal kingdom including humans humans are pretty unique in that we're the only ones that really do teaching Mm. um and that's because we've always seen teaching or training as being being necessary to have this thing called theory of mind so that's basically a psychological concept where that I can I can read your thoughts in a way because I can anticipate what you might be thinking um, based on my experience. I can have them empathy, but I can also think about, oh, you know, if she does this, then I'll need to do that. And so you can start to have some very complex um, sort of first, second, third, fourth positions where you're able to think about the politics of the whole thing. Yeah, and that helps with training. So, I in in my training training room, I can look at the people in my room, my training room, and think, right, how are they going to understand this point? Right, first of all, I need to establish this as being something they need to understand first, and they can build on that then to understand this bit. So, in order to do that, you have to be able to understand other minds, and we've always thought that animals just don't have the capability of doing that. Yeah. Um, but um, she sort of, I think she poo-pooed on that really a little bit. Um, so she she identified some animals that do teach. Yeah. Yeah, she did, didn't she? Which I thought was quite interesting. So um, the, first of all, she cited the idea of chimps. So uh, that's what I would have thought. So chimps, fishing, termites. So we've seen them on television programs where they've had the little stick and they've kind of put a little stick into a hole where the termites yeah. live. And they, so they're fishing termites. And we've always said that's kind of an example of, well, it is learning. So other young will watch what the adult is doing and they might copy that. But that's that's not quite the same thing as training or teaching um, because essentially you're just doing it yourself as the adult and the child or the, the young is just watching you. Mm. Um, whereas teaching is something a bit more, it's this thing that I mentioned, it's this, it, we've thought of it as intervening in, in a way that you're purposely trying to get this person to learn something. Mm-hmm. Um, but meerkats apparently mm-hmm. do teach. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to say something about that, which I found fascinating? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, she showed us a, a, a little video. And basically what meerkats tend, seem to do is they actually go to what we would call a school, like a little <laughs> yeah. nursery school, and they have meerkat helpers. And what the meerkat helpers' role is is to teach the meerkat 
pups, the babies, um, how to basically deal with scorpions because scorpions are a source of food for meerkats. But obviously scorpions have got the stinger, which could be uh, could kill. Mm. So um, what happens is the, the, the helpers, um, they teach the pups in a safe manner how to get practice dealing with obviously this feisty prey. And what they do is they make the meerkats, when they're very young, only allow them to play with dead scorpions. Mm. Um, so basically they've obviously got a dead scorpion in front of them they are allowed to bat them and stuff. And then as they get older, um, they might give them a scorpion that has had been chopped up a bit or, you know, with the scorpion they might have even had the stinger removed mm. um, so that makes it not deadly, which that's fascinating as well because obviously the meerkat understands that it's the tail on the scorpion that causes the problem. And then again, the, the pups like then um, graduate up the next level so that when they're older still, then they're allowed to um, play or deal with live intact prey, the scorpions. So the pups have lots of practice handling prey and they can effectively dispatch the prey as they go along learning. And it's it's basically yeah it's like a little school for mm. the baby meerkats and um, they have the 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 helpers that are the teachers and yeah they they go up a level they they graduate class to the next level as <laughs> <Yes>. it were <laughs> yeah no it's fascinating and and what um what she said was that um they they don't actually need theory of mind so that 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 kind of casts um, doubt on everything that we said really already around training and teaching that you kind of need to understand the mind of the person you're teaching for these yeah. animals. They've essentially, they've, they have certain behavioral triggers, if you like, that, that mean they move on to the next stage of training. And this yeah. is to do with the, the noises that the, the baby makes. Um, and the fact that as they, once they reach a certain age, they, they make a different call. And at that yeah. point, the the helpers know by instinct obviously through natural selection that right now it's time to do the next thing so they 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 introduce the next part so they're not they're not sort of again this is where you know cognitive psychology is difficult with animals because you you can't really question them and ask them what were you thinking Um, but we don't think that they are weighing it up and thinking all right yeah you know we need to do this now and we need to do that these are all instinctive behaviors that have essentially been selected for over millions of years and um and therefore they are able to you know but they are still training them so it's not just that the meerkats are watching the older ones they are actually being trained but they're being trained not by teachers or trainers that are able to understand the learning process they're just doing the thing that they do, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, this is a, an evolutionary imperative that is working here that, that helps to select for creatures that are cooperative, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, they. Uh, she also looked at um, cooperating with strangers. So one of the things that humans do we we cooperate with strangers she talked about right at the beginning uh, like a scene traffic scene and you know we will cooperate with each other we know it's in everyone's interest to do that 
Yes. Um, whereas, you know, we perhaps don't think about animals doing that. But she talked about this blue streak cleaner wrasse. It's a type of fish. Yeah. And it, um, it, it kind of services other fish, doesn't it? By yeah. getting rid of these parasites. Yeah, they clean the parasites off the fish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, they, they cook, they, like you say, they clean a fish. They live in the coral reefs. And this, uh, basically they have, this is really interesting, they have little cleaning stations where they offer <laughs> a cleaning service to the other fish. So yeah. it's almost like um, a, a modern-day car wash where yeah. these little fish come swimming in and they wait patiently um, for clients. Yeah. Um, so what the, what the what they do is the cleaning service they they remove the parasites and dead skin off the surface of the client fish, mm. and that helps obviously with their client fish's health. Um, and then what she was talking about was she was saying that at first glance, you know, this is quite harmonious interaction. Mm. The clients get the parasites removed, the cleaner fish get a meal in return. But she says that there's also a bit of a conflict of interest between the cleaner fish and the clients because um, the, cl- the clients, they might want the cleaner fish to remove extra parasites, but the cleaner fish might actually prefer to eat and, you know, have the opportunity to to carry on and do clean clients' living tissues. So right. the cleaner fish, yeah, they, they prefer to eat mucus and scales. <laughs> <laughs> And not so active you parasite. That, you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a little bit of a mishmash, basically. <laughs> so she was exploring cooperation between mm. this system and mm. how, you know, if the one party might be tempted to cheat a little bit to get what mm. they want, they can't just sit down and talk about it like humans mm. do because there's, there's no rules or authorities in place with cleaner fish. Um, so that's what they've been studying. They've been studying how how... They interact and how they sort that out. The What Should I Think About podcast has been going now since around November 2020 and we've really enjoyed doing it. We release at least two shows a week. It's about eight a month, of course, with Sunday being an interview and Wednesday being our discussion about a new subject each week. We love you, our listeners, and we really value the interaction we have with you and we want to keep the podcast going. Currently, I pretty much work on the podcast full-time, researching topics, booking guests, recording and editing, with Celine working part-time, doing very much the same things. So in order for us to keep going and continue to improve, we've reached that point in the life of a podcast where we have to make some decisions about how we support it financially. Most podcasts have ads, either that are delivered by the podcast hosts or from third parties that interrupt the show. We really don't want to do that. We want to keep the What Should I Think About podcast ad-free. So we're going to try something different to most podcasts. We'd like to ask you if you think this podcast is worth a pound or a dollar fifty or a euro twenty a month or whatever the equivalent is in your own currency. If you think it's worth that, we'd like to invite you to become a member or a patron for just that. So how we're doing it is we're flattening out our tiers on Patreon to just our single lowest tier. For those patrons, not only will you get the two public podcasts a week, but you'll also get exclusive video each month, 
bonus content of at least one a month and probably more, and exclusive access to the What Should I Think About Facebook private group, where you can contribute to our Ask Us Anything episodes coming up soon and talk about the show. We've got other plans too that will make your pound or dollar fifty even better value, but we can't say too much about that yet. We really want to make access to this community possible to everyone, and we think this minimal amount will do that, while providing the show with a small income in order for us to keep going. So the next few weeks we'll be flattening out our tiers on Patreon and providing all benefits through the lowest tier currently known as loss aversion for just a pound or its equivalent in your own currency. So please consider being part of our community. Thank you. The link to our Patreon page can be found in the show notes. Yeah, what was interesting was the... um, the so they often do it more than one so males and females mm. will often share in that um that work of uh again as you said they 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 will eat obviously the parasites and the dead um matter is good enough for them to survive but obviously it's not that juicy juicy um, <laughs> lovely mucus that they'd really like to eat mm. <laughs> um and, and live tissue but um obviously if they take a little nibble of the fish the fish feels that they don't like yep. it so they're being bitten essentially um but what was interesting was the the other members of the uh, the, the cleaner fish uh, always males which was interesting um mm. will punish the females if they uh, take a little nibble so um they they are controlling the behavior if you like controlling of, yeah controlling the service that they offer that's right the yeah. they've been they've been observed to behave aggressively to um, other cleaner fish that basically break the rules. That's right. Yeah, which is yeah. just fascinating. She actually had video footage, didn't she, of um, a client fish that swum into the car park. You know, the cl- the cleaning area, <laughs> yeah. and he was being cleaned. And then obviously she got a bit carried away, and she yeah. had a nibble, and it, it had upset the client fish, and he'd yeah. had a he'd had a wobble. Mm. And then her boss, the other cleaner fish, started chasing her. Didn't didn't yeah. he around? Sure. Yeah. And basically giving her a little bit of a smack with his fins, which was just really interesting. <laughs> and, yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And all that, yeah. all that's been done without this sort of, again, we can't imagine that the fish are kind of weighing all this up and thinking, you know, obviously that we've got to be a service here. We can't be upsetting our clients. No. Uh, that's, you right. know, that, that's not happening. It's, it's behavior that has developed through these processes, yeah. these natural um processes which i think is really really interesting yeah yeah so um, um, yeah because they likened it didn't she she was like what what she was likening it to was um uh the human humans have the ability to basically as we know cheat so hmm. say that it was a human that was that had had a little bit of a nibble of an extra cake that they shouldn't have had or yeah. something and then and then some you know would have been spotted and would have had a little bit of a punishment so yeah. that's like called they call this in humans, they call this kind of punishment third party punishment. Right. And they thought that that was unique to humans. So obviously to see this in the animal kingdom where, mm. you know, this cleaner fish had, had a little nibble where they shouldn't and had been punished by another cleaner fish. Yeah. It was, um, it was, it was fascinating to them, the scientists. It poses the question of how much of our behavior is really this, what we think it is, this sort of cognitive, thoughtful, planned, um, behavior and how much actually is is down to these instinctive behaviors that we kind of do anyway 
Yeah. Um, and I think there's a heck of a lot of that, actually. We like to think that with this rational being that is making these decisions based on the big picture, but I think a lot of our behavior is is just instinctive, is just yeah. reactive, really. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, and then, so with all this, yeah. these examples, these meerkats and these fish, um, she also talked about um, briefly these birds, these pied babblers and white-throated bee-eaters. I think it was the pied babblers who also will tell their offspring little white lies, essentially. So they'll they'll make a call um, for the offspring to think that, oh, that's where I get some food, because this is a food call. But it, the, the parent knows that there is no food, but they're doing it to get the... The, the young away from danger which i thought was very interesting yeah um so kind of a white lie she described it as which i thought was absolutely beautiful yeah uh, which is yeah, great that's right. yeah. uh, so after after all those examples in the animal kingdom we came back to human beings and there was a couple of um sort of tribes that she talked about there's the takana um in kenya where they go on these raids um stealing cattle and women um and the fact that deserters of the raid are, are punished but i thought the i don't know whether you've got anything to say about that one but um the other one that i'd like to talk about is the cheyenne and the way that they dealt with two men who broke ranks um when they were chasing a herd so they're hunters they they hunt in groups and a couple of men broke ranks and obviously did decided they didn't want to to go on the hunt and they just decided to to um to give it a miss as it were which meant that they were putting the hunt at risk so these guys were now liable for punishment yeah and um risking the hunt for everybody else wasn't it that's right exactly so it, it was a obviously a problem um socially now the punishment was pretty brutal um, so the punishment was killing their horses and breaking their guns. Yeah. Um, and these were young guys, they were young boys, um, or boys, not that young, I suppose. So, so yeah, the, the question then was, well, you know, what, what are the boys going to do basically? Yeah. And so that's that, at this point, the chief relents and points out that the boys now had no horses or guns. Um, so the rest of the men provided what they needed to, uh, carry on and, and get back. So there was this sense within the human society of um, regulating behaviour um, through, I guess, social norms. This is what you do. Mm. And when people didn't follow those social norms or conventions, then punishment was required. Mm-hmm. Um but she made the point that punishment often leads to retaliation so that it has to be measured. Certainly in this tribe, it's measured um, so that it's not, you know, there's opportunity for rehabilitation essentially. So that was an example of that in, in, I suppose a a different sort of society, a different sort of social structure. Um, And I thought that was, that was really interesting that, she then applied that to something that we in the UK would 
know about because if you need to get your shoe men shoes mended who do you go to there's a shop in the high street called Timpsons. Timpsons. Yeah. Um, I didn't know this about Timpsons, did you? Yeah. I did I did know oh, about did. this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got a great reputation this um, yeah. this organization. Yes, yeah, so basically Timpsons um um for the listeners, they they repair shoes and they yep. cook keys. That's right. Um and it's basically uh on iron mongers, basically is the old fashioned term for it. Mm. Um but what they do do um is they are the uk's largest employer of ex-offenders that's right which is just fantastic yeah. and apparently they are able to boast a really high retention rate of their employees as well yeah um because um they they basically they look after their uh employees who are ex-offenders yeah. they take them through academies they train them they rehabilitate and they offer them Bottom line is they offer them respect and hope, don't they? That's right. It's just such a fantastic story. I, I think I want to explore that a bit more. Mm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to somebody at Timpsons. I think I'd love to talk to them a mm. bit more about this. Um, with my sort I mean, of... I think I think this was brilliant. On the apparently on the yeah. day of the release of the offender, um, mm. they will meet the the person at the prison gates introduce them to their new colleagues with a uniform and lunch and settle them into their new home. I mean, how yeah. fantastic is that? You Brilliant. know, if, you, if you've yeah. just come out of prison and you just want to start again and that's the mm. opportunity you're given, uh, no wonder they have a retention rate that's incredibly high of their employees because you get loyalty for, for that, wouldn't you, of your employees? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what I thought was was good, I mean, it's not – they're not – the organization isn't um foolish so they obviously cutting keys is is quite a potentially problematic um activity if you've just come out of prison you know maybe that's not the best job to offer somebody um who's a thief maybe <laughs> um but um so they're not stupid they don't give people that job to do first you know they um but but it's that um it, yeah that the the process that they go through is is very very well thought through, well designed, and, um, yeah. and it works. But yeah. but it's a good example of you know a similar sort of situation to the, the 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 other group that we just talked about, the Cheyenne. You know, so yes, there is some punishment, but it can't be the end of the road for those individuals. Otherwise, they are not going to be able to cooperate and um, be a part of society. They're not going to be able to contribute to society. So, um, I mean, she skirted around some politics at times, which I think is absolutely fine. Um, and for me, that demonstrates the need for, yes, of course, uh, there may be an element of punishment there. And that's probably normal. That's I think that's the way we've seen in the animal kingdom that happens. But it's not to the extent that the person, you know, isn't able to uh, to contribute to society. I mean, I guess it depends what they've done, of course. So we're talking here about, um, you know, generally people who have uh, done things like steal burglary um those sorts of things yeah so i guess there's there's a limit to to the, the risks that that one could take but still i thought that was very very interesting very interesting i agree yeah um so yeah so they then talks a little bit about the difference between men and women or male and female in the animal kingdom and that um males t Males tend to be uh, willing to do more of this signalling 
um, to signal that they are willing to cooperate or that they are, uh, I mean, obviously they talked about the obvious things like peacocks and so on. Yeah. Displaying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Called them broadcast signals, didn't she? That's right. Yeah. And then she likened that to um, human beings. And so they did some work on uh, fundraising pages on the internet, which was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, she was. She said that they studied um, online fundraising pages, which most of your listeners will probably be familiar with. They're quite popular these days, yeah. where people set up if they're doing um, something for a particular charity, for example, or running a marathon, they set up their own individual web page and they invite people to donate on the page. And so, what what she what they discussed was that this is also somewhere where people can broadcast signal um, because you get the option when you donate to um, donate either um, privately or you can actually put your um, amount onto your pay onto the page you can put the amount that you've donated and that means that previous that donors can see what previous donors have given so what they were able to do is um, when when a donor obviously comes onto a fundraising page and looks at what the previous donors have given, what 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 do they do next? So, for example, they looked at if the average donation size was £30 and then every now and again someone would come along and they'd make a larger donation and, for example, £50 or slightly more. And then what they said was the, uh, the average uh, psychological... Uh, inclination was the next donors would give £10 more than the previous donation so they would give £60 for example mm. um, so that was what that's what they were finding was happening and then if a small donation arrived then subsequent donors would also give smaller donations as mm. well mm. so and then they looked at um, what would happen if a larger donation was given by a man Uh, and uh, the Generosity Amount tournament begins, she said, like, basically, (laughs) uh, people respond to generosity, in particular if it was a man. They donate mail pages, um, and particularly, uh, sorry, they donate more, and particularly if it was a previous donation was given by what they would consider an attractive female fundraiser, the man would donate more again um peacocking i suppose (laughs) so yeah it was just really interesting yeah 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 Yeah, so that was that was interesting so the the whole question on about signaling uh cooperative behavior and i suppose motivations for that or was also quite interesting so yeah yeah, it's um again i think these two different levels that we might think about um cooperation so it, it can it can be uh, just uh, an instinctive thing or it can be something that's thought through at least we think it is um but some of the motivations could be quite quite base really when it comes well down yeah to- i mean the, the study found that basically that they, when they in the presence of attractive female audience yeah most men will show up to that show off to that as it was yeah, um yeah the same it's... as like then she referred it back to the cleaner fish didn't she she said that the cleaner fish yeah. um when a cleaner fish is cleaning clams on a reef um it's often the case that it has clients that are waiting nearby yeah so when that happens and the clients are waiting uh they pay attention to what's going on the cleaner fish 
um, with uh, with the current interaction, if it ends badly and the current client flees away from the cleaning station or they aggressively chase the cleaner fish that sometimes is watching, the bystanders will also swim away. So if the cleaner fish is aware of what's been happening, that they know they've been watched by an audience, they will go out of their way to provide a better service That's right. to the current yeah. clients. Yeah. <laughs> they don't make a big show of how they're cleaning. I just Amazing. think it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what she was saying is this highlights the point that the behavioural outcome uh, and the cognitive journey that goes along with it, um, you know, whether you're a human or a cleaner fish, you you do reach the same destination by your behaviour. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, which was absolutely fascinating, and and yeah. may suggest that again, perhaps uh, I'm I'm stretching it now, so I don't know whether she said this, but to me, this suggests that maybe there's more kind of automatic behaviour, instinctive behaviour going on than we like to think. You know, yeah. there's a lot of um, well, um, a book perhaps we should talk about sometime is um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Okay. Um, and um, he talks about this system one type thinking, which is essentially this thinking fast. It's um, just instinctive. We just do it. We don't think about it. We just do it. And then we've got this system two thinking, which is um that more cognitive thinking it through and um, being conscious of our thoughts if you like and we because we as our identity if you like the me and the i of us tend to we obviously operate in this thoughtful zone we tend to think that everything's about that you know but actually there's a heck of a lot going on that is underneath the bonnet that we don't actually know anything about <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's still part of us because it's in our brain but it's just yeah. not in our conscious um, thinking so it's a fascinating subject um yeah so um just sort of finishing off she talks about the social or societal implications and she does make the point that we could run away with the idea that you know co cooperation is the panacea it's um mm. you know yes it is our superpower therefore it's all about cooperation but she did give us some examples of you know good cooperation but also some problems that that come from cooperation yeah um she talked about cronyism nepotism corruption these are all things that are absolutely cooperative um but obviously lead to costs and a, a difficult um outcome so yeah cooperation is a double-edged sword yeah which i thought was quite interesting yeah, which which I guess led me uh, to think about, um, you know, not everything has to come back to cults and high control groups. But, um, of course, these groups are cooperative. So they are an, an example of an organization that works together. And so, yeah, of course, these are highly, highly cooperative social structures who I guess are using a lot of these natural processes that, that we have, you know, they're, these are embedded within us, hardwired, if you like, yeah. within us. So it's no surprise that, you know, it, it, we're able to be manipulated in this way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for that. That was really interesting. I, I, I enjoyed um, that little chat. Me too. It was good. So it's yeah, a shame. Jordan couldn't make it. We'll get him on next time if he's up for it. Yeah. Um, but it was lovely talking to you, producer Bob. 
I hope I was okay, Stephen. I'm, I'm aware that I'm a little bit not quite so compassmentous as normal. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, it's fine. I think um, I think that'll be absolutely fine. I think we'll we'll be able to nice little um, short get a little probably. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so let's just let's wrap it up. Um, so thank you very much, producer Bob, for being with us today. On what should I think about? I really, I'm sure all our listeners um, wish you well and hope you your cold gets better soon. Oh, thank you. Um, but um, thank you very much for being with us today. No, thank you for having me. And, Always a pleasure. Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll get together again for another episode of In Conversation. What should I think about? Is an evil sheep production. <laughs>